stumbled onto the sleeping giant. Let's broaden our minds. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sleeping Giant podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. The year is getting away from us rather quickly at this point, and we are just around the corner from Christmas. I hope all of you have been good little boys and girls this year, because we are going to need all that positivity to carry over into the next year to try to make it even better than the last. I hope you've all been good, not only so that Santa treats you right and keeps your name out of Krampus's black book of naughty deeds and doings, But because 2019 is bringing so many amazing things to the fandom table, we need to make sure that we're all set to celebrate instead of hate and let other people enjoy what they want to enjoy. So let's start generating that holiday cheer and goodwill and keep the wheels spinning on into 2019. In this episode, we've got some good news and some bad news, and we'll likely get the bad news out of the way first so that we can move on, though we will do our best to look at it in the most proactive and positive way that we can. The good news you've likely all heard by now, but it is my duty to share it here and offer my opinions. Still, I try to be as objective as I can, and I understand that uh, those opinions those opinions rather are in fact subjective, even if, of course, I am partial to my own. Finally, I'm happy to say that Maggie Ransom will be joining us again, and We'll shoot the breeze, maybe, and get around to talking about the sequel to the 2016 film, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. That movie, as you know, is The Crimes of Grindelwald. So, I know I'm not the only one that was fiercely anticipating that film, and I'm curious to know what you all thought about it. So, I'd love it if you shot us a voicemail or an email or left us a comment on Facebook or Instagram. We'll make sure that we include it in the next show. And hopefully generate a further discussion. Now, y'all go on and get comfy, because we are about to begin. As many of you likely know, it was announced on the 12th of November that Marvel Comics pioneer Stan Lee had passed away from his time on this earth. It's hard to imagine that the name Stan Lee has not been read or spoken aloud by an overwhelming majority of pop culture fans and consumers, especially with the modern popularity of superhero films such as X-Men, Spider-Man, Black Panther, Thor, and Iron Man, all of which were co-created and published by Mr. Lee. Needless to say, Stanley's impact on our culture and us as fans has been tremendous, and he was largely responsible for many of the characters and stories that have added incalculable value to our lives. I I mean, speaking for myself, I think that's absolutely true. Though Stan is commonly associated with comic book creation and publication, um, and of course for his quirky and seemingly random cameos in Marvel films, Stan was a giant in the field of philanthropy and often used his characters and stories to challenge the status quo and to call out many forms of bigotry and intolerance within our society. I wrote a brief piece on my feelings about Stan that I had published on both our Facebook and Instagram account, which you can access if you're so inclined, though I'd like to read it aloud here as it seems appropriate to me. So 
Uh, this, this was actually the piece I had published the following day. I decided to take a day or so to really think about what I wanted to say about Stan Lee, apart from that I am saddened by his passing. My wife had one of the best notions, and that is that a person who gave as much as Stan should be celebrated more than anything else, having shoveled off this mortal coil, as it were. And I believe that's true. Of course, Stan Lee gave us so many comics and characters, for which I'm super grateful, but perhaps more important is how a lot of those characters came to be, how they were created during a time of incredible intolerance to defend the other and the downtrodden, how they fought for justice in a society who would see them only as freaks despite their efforts to protect those who would despise them. Stan Lee's characters were a litmus for our society, which can often prove corrosive. His stories and ideas went so far as, to my own mind, to offer a neutralizing solution. For me personally, I found tremendous solace in characters like Spider-Man and the X-Men. I never felt like I fit in, and I believed I must have been some kind of mutant. All of those comics that I read and still read made me feel like maybe that wasn't such a bad thing, and it might even be something special. And that right there, that feeling, is something for which I'll always be grateful. So, that said, thank you ever so much, Stan Lee. It's on us to carry forward what you gave to us, and to do for it all the justice we can. All right, if you like, you can read that yourself on Facebook or Instagram. Indeed, Mr. Lee has done so much and more to earn the everlasting moniker and nickname Stan the Man, and he will be missed. So once again, thank you, Stan Lee, for everything. Mom has been the word in the world of Star Wars for the past little while, though there have been a few developments that I've found interesting. First, it was announced that actor Pedro Pascal would be taking the lead role in Jon Favreau's live-action Star Wars series, The Mandalorian. This is significant to me, not only because it means that The Mandalorian is moving ever forward, now with a face under the helmet, presumably, but also because I was enamored by Pedro Pascal in his portrayal of Prince Oberyn Martell in HBO's Game of Thrones. I know several people are also fans of Pascal and the role that he plays in the Netflix series Narcos, but... I have not personally seen it. Um, all I know is that the character of Oberyn Martell was a supreme badass that gave off this uh, perpetual aura of cool masculinity, all without being overly macho or full of bluster, and that is something I can appreciate nicely. It will be interesting to see what, if any, of that performance carries over into The Mandalorian, or if Pedro is going to blow us all away with something brand new. I know I'm excited by the prospect, and uh, of course, I welcome you all to share your opinions with me. I'd love to know what you think. Next up, we have a more recent bit of news, what with the unveiling of a new Star Wars animated web series entitled Star Wars Galaxy of Adventures. The trailer dropped on November 30th, which was just a few days ago, and it featured a series of clips based on what StarWars.com called, quote, pivotal moments from the saga. The web series will be featured on the new Star Wars Kids channel, I believe it's called, on YouTube, which at the time of this recording already features seven minute long shorts. So, yeah, did that sound odd? 
seven shorts in total, all a minute long. I, I think you probably got me. Obviously, the series is geared towards children with the atten- excuse me, the intention of attracting younger viewers to the franchise. So, you know, I'll ask you to please stop your fanboy belly aching now. I myself, I'm pretty stoked about it because I quite enjoyed the Star Wars Forces of Destiny series, which consisted of several animations focused on the female characters of the Star Wars universe. Now, that series was a whole lot of fun, and it gave us several new and fun ways to appreciate and celebrate Star Wars, and I don't foresee this series being any different. I'm really excited to sit down and watch them all the way through with my kiddo. Actually, now that I think about it, watching them all the way through might not be the way to do it. Maybe one at a time. Uh, and I this comes to my mind because my brother gave us this Star Wars Lego advent calendar that we've been doing together. We it you know Every day up until Christmas in December, you get to open a little window and it's a little Star Wars Lego that that you can put together and we've been doing that together and we had a whole lot of fun it's it's been a blast so thank you for doing that William um Izzy loves it and it appears to be something that we both really enjoy doing together and hopefully we can keep doing that um together until Christmas and and maybe somewhere over the span of that time we can fit in some of those episodes um but she was all about star wars tonight after we got done putting those together she wanted to wear her star wars jammies to bed and and everything was star wars and she was talking about how much she loved it which is you know of course i love it but you know it just seemed kind of out of the blue and coincided directly with putting those leathers uh, excuse me those legos together so you know i'm i'm really happy either way but uh yeah i will put a link in the show notes to the YouTube channel. I believe it's Star Wars Kids on YouTube, and that's where you can see those new animated shorts. All right, everybody, we're going to drop in now to the conversation that I was able to have with Maggie about the sequel to Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, The Crimes of Grindelwald. So we had a good time talking about that film. As as I'm sure you know, if you've seen it by now, there's quite a bit to discuss, quite a bit to unpack, and quite a bit to try and understand. So Let's go ahead and jump into this now and and see if we can make some sense out of uh, everything that we saw in that film. All right. Thanks for sitting down with me again, Maggie. No problem. Hello again. (laughs) Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about, or rather, uh, we have one thing that we want to talk about. A lot to bitch about. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot to uh, a lot to go over. Uh, we wanted to have Maggie on so that we could talk about Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. More specifically, I suppose I should say that we wanted to talk about the sequel film, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Fantastic Beasts. That was a book first. Is that correct? It was a book mentioned in the um, the original Harry Potter series. Um, it was one of Harry's, uh, textbooks for school. And then, um, I guess just for fun, they made a very small book out of it, um, as well as Quidditch Through the Ages. So those two um, were books within the books. Yeah. Yeah. And it was more just a fun thing for the fans, um, to be able to add a couple of books from the Hogwarts library to their collection. Do you know if J.K. Rowling, did she, uh... You know, and hang on, while I'm thinking about it, is it rolling or rowling? I'd say rolling, but in I I feel like rowling is probably the proper yeah, I think that would pronunciation. Be, 
that would be proper, wouldn't it? <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, so somebody, if you could be so kind as to shoot us a message or an email and let us know which one that is. Um, so b- there were books within books. Uh, and Quidditch Through the Ages, I know, that was narrated by Andrew Lincoln. Yeah, very recently, yes. And then, of course, there's um, the Tales of Beetle the Bard, but that didn't come until later because that wasn't mentioned until, I believe, the Deathly Hallows. Yeah, that was a book that Hermione owned, right? Am I remembering that correctly? It was given after Dumbledore's death. um, She inherited it from him. He he left it to Hermione. That's right. And Ron got the putter outer. And Mm -hmm. then Harry... Harry got the snitch, and um, he left him the sword of Gryffindor, but then, of course, the uh, minister was like, that's not his to give, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Did Griphook have it? He was being kind of a bastard about it, wasn't he? Or he wanted the sword. He wanted it. He was going to help them get it. and. Mm -hmm. But the sword presented itself to Harry later um, when they were all in the woods searching, hunting. Right. Oh, yeah. It was under the ice, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, we're kind of getting off subject anyway. We'll have to to revisit that later. (laughs) We'd be rambling. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's okay, because that's all part of it. So what was your experience with that book? Did you read it? I did. I I got um, both that and Quidditch Through the Ages when I was a kid uh, growing up reading Harry Potter and it was interesting. I think it was the most interesting of the two, um, just because I was fascinated with animals in general, and of course, magical creatures um, was especially fascinating. But um, um, I, I never would have imagined that a movie would have sprung from that. But it did, and uh, it seemed to be received very well. I know by the time that I watched it, uh, I enjoyed it probably more than the Harry Potter series. Yeah, well, you you approached, unfortunately, the Harry Potter series as an adult, um, which is, I feel, a bit of a different experience from starting it when you're a kid, because uh, I was of the same age as Harry and friends um, when the first book came out. So that was Right. Fun. Yeah, I definitely envy people having that experience because I did come into it later and I recognized them as incredibly well-crafted stories and I had a lot of fun reading them but I didn't I just don't have that that passion for Harry Potter that um that people that started reading it earlier on did and definitely a little jealous about that but I I do know that I loved that film and I had an, an incredible amount of fun watching it and uh it really, it really grabbed me. You know, I think uh, Rowling, Rowling um, really took into consideration uh, the age of her fans because um, I just read uh, The Crimes of Grindelwald screenplay. And um, in it, because there's a flashback, it mentions the age of Newt and uh, Leda Lestrange. And Newt is, like I said, I was the same age as Harry and Friends when I first started reading those books. And now I realize that Newt in The Crimes of Grindelwald is the exact same age as I am now. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I think she just really took into consideration um, the general age of fans and where they are now with her new story. So after you saw the first movie, well, how did, let me ask you this. How did you feel about that first film? Oh, I loved the first film. I thought it was very well paced. I loved all the characters. Um, 
Yeah, I love the setup for the future of the series. I thought that was really well done. And, you know, the beasts were fantastic. <laughs> At that point, did they know they were going to make five films? I believe so, yes. So that was already kind of in mind. Mm-hmm. What a yeah. strong start, though, to, uh, to uh, uh, well, I guess, a, a series that, that had every intention of moving forward. An incredibly strong start. Yeah, and I actually watched um, a brief interview with her recently, and she said, you know, with the first film, you have these new characters, and it's a different time, and she really wanted to take a moment to separate them from the story, from Harry's story, and really let them become their own characters and develop their own story. Well, I think they were incredibly successful in that, especially with having Newt leave... Hogwarts and come to America. Yeah. He, well, he wasn't um, actually working at Hogwarts. But where was he working at the time? No, I believe he was working for the ministry. I could be wrong, but I think he had um, some job to do with beasts, actually. Um, maybe enforcement or some, some sort of um, occupation. It was necessary for him to to come to America, though, and and I I don't remember specifically how that came to be, but the juxtaposition between, or the juxtaposition of the the European schools of witchcraft and wizardry and the American school of witchcraft and wizardry, I thought that was that was definitely a a stroke of brilliance. Oh, yeah, that was really fun um, because it really just broadens the magical world, the wizarding world, um, as it's now called because of Fantastic Beasts. Um, It's really expanded it. And, um, you know, now it's it's almost limitless, all the new information you could get um, about the wizarding world. So I think before we move forward, it's important to address the, the time frame that these mm-hmm. movies take place in, which uh, I believe is in the mid-1920s. Yes. Um, so speaking specifically about the crimes of Grindelwald, were you looking forward to it? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, you know, I love the first film and um, just the trailer and what I knew of where the story was going with this one. It was really taking off, and so I was very excited for sure. I would definitely interject on, on that point and say that personally, I was extremely excited about the sequel. So mm-hmm. um, now, once we knew that you know it was definitely happening and it was in production, what did you think of the casting once that was announced? Uh, well, they kind of trickled out the casting. Um, I think we knew, obviously, from the first film that Johnny Depp would be playing Grindelwald from that point forward. Um, and I know there was a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a hiccup upset. there. Yeah. But, um, you know, personally I, I was interested to see where he would take it. I felt like they really took their time introducing the new characters. It wasn't until the film was about to be released that we found out who would be playing a Nagini and, um, some of the other pretty major characters, Yusef. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, I'll go ahead and say before we move into discussing the film proper, there's, there's very little as far as detail is concerned that I remember about that movie, if that gives you any indication as to my attitude towards the crimes of Grindelwald. So 
Um, who came back? We have Eddie Redmayne as Newt's commander, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, yeah, all the same actors for Jacob, Queenie, Tina, Credence. I believe that's really all of the main main characters. I don't know any of their um, many of the actors' names. Right, uh, Ezra Miller was Credence. I think Ezra Miller, uh, mm-hmm. Catherine Watterson was the uh, the American, which I can't Tina. remember that character's Tina was it? Yes, I think it's uh, that was short Queenie. for a much longer name. And yeah. uh, Dan Fogler, of course, is <laughs> Jacob, which. Yeah. I'm enjoying his character in The Walking Dead, by the way. <laughs> now that we've seen the movie, mm-hmm. what what did you think of it? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's hard to say. Um, first off, I came out kind of disappointed. Very disappointed, actually. Um, well, the hopes were really high. Yeah. I went into it with very high hopes, or at least a high standard of expectation as bad as it seemed to me i still you know with everything we'll talk about um i still i just can't bring myself to dislike it because i just love the wizarding world so much and i love this time period i love the new characters i love that it feels more adult you know i love the beasts so i just i can't dislike it especially when it's just one movie in five right i just i'm looking at this and i I think this, you know, the fandom is so big and the expectations, like you said, are so high. I think hopefully they will learn from the mistakes they made in this film and not make them on future films. So when I think about watching it, I remember visually I was very entertained and it was, uh, there was a lot of eye candy. Mm-hmm. Um, the color palette. The new beasts were the, amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, Kelby, the character the, design, mm-hmm. creature design. Absolutely stunning. Um, yeah. A lot of the locations also completely stunning to mm-hmm. me. So what what is it? Why is it that we can't seem to to come to a point where we can say this was a good film? Because by all rights, it should have been by by the strength of the cast, the strength of the story, or was it the story? Maybe that's where it was. I, yeah, I a don't feel weak. it was the story. Actually, um, I think some of the details were weak. But the overall story was still good. Um, I really felt that its downfall was just they tried to do too much in this one film. And um, it really felt rushed. Mm. Like they didn't take time to honor information and history that had already been established in the Harry Potter books. Okay. Well, I definitely want to touch on that. But very quickly, before we move the conversation forward, I would like to read the synopsis of the film, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Um, And it is as follows, according to the Google page. In an effort to thwart Grindelwald's plans of raising pure-blood wizards to rule over all non-magical beings, Albus Dumbledore enlists his former student, Newt Scamander, who agrees to help, unaware of the dangers that lie ahead. Lines are drawn as love and loyalty are tested, even among the truest friends and family, in an increasingly divided wizarding world. So that's the overall basis of the film, at least according to Google. Yeah, and if it um, had been left at pretty much that. Um, so oh, overall, what I think is the film, what the film should have been, was, um, you know, Grindelwald is aware of Credence now that, you know, he is the Obscurus. 
Um, he's very powerful. He should be dead, but he's not. And now he can use those powers to do a tremendous amount of, I guess, evil, if he so chooses. Um, and he's definitely a force, literally, to be reckoned with. Um, so if they had just kept it at Grindelwald is uh, beginning to collect his followers He's got his eye on Credence, and he's luring Credence in. Credence is searching for who he is. You know, he's um, insecure, and Grindelwald's preying on that. If it had been that, Dumbledore being aware of this, and he and Newt working together to thwart Grindelwald's plans and try to keep Credence away. That's all it needed to be. Yeah, now that I actually hear you say that when i think back to the movie that really was more or less the premise you had mm -hmm. the obscurus which was established in the first film mm -hmm. he sort of calmed his tits and you know didn't end up destroying the world which you know i'm sure we're all thankful for yeah. so then you have grindelwald who's been in azkaban for zeta zeta years mm -hmm. and uh and he's managed to somehow get out i'm still a little fuzzy on that whole escape thing, uh, so he his purpose, rather, or his his idea, was to collect Ezra Miller, mm -hmm. uh, Credence, and use that power to his advantage. I Essentially mean, that's to destroy Dumbledore because right. he can't destroy Dumbledore. He knows that Dumbledore is stronger than he is, and they can't attack each so other. So that was his primary motivation. Mm -hmm. When you say it like that, it mm -hmm. all seems really sort of clear. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember it being that clear. It wasn't because they were throwing all these details at you. Um, the the whole Lady Lestrange and uh, either Yusef or Yusuf, I believe, that whole storyline muddied um, what really should have been, I felt this movie should have been Credence's story. It was his moment. We needed to learn more about him. You know, what was driving him and the people trying to get at him from either side, one side to protect yeah, him, one that, side to use him. I didn't understand that. It, it definitely seemed like if he was being pursued and one or both sides were trying to obtain him, he had very little screen time. He really, in that he really entire did film. have very little screen time. Um, and I thought, you know, I really would have liked to have seen more of the budding friendship or relationship or whatever between him and Nagini, but that was so, Nagini was so um, just, you know, washed over by the whole Lady Lestrange um, thing, which I really... So it, what was that about? Well, I didn't understand it quite as much in the film, but when I read the screenplay afterwards, basically she was thrown in because... Everyone believed that Credence was her brother, who everyone had believed to be lost at sea. Right. <clears throat> but rumors had spread that perhaps the baby hadn't been lost, and Credence was her brother. And so it would have been useful for her to have been of a relation to him because... And this is, this is another issue I took with it. They kind of... It feels like they're making it up as they go. And they haven't written out a good, solid plot for all five films. They haven't established right. it yet. because I can't know, imagine any other major franchise that may have experienced a similar mm -hmm. situation. <laughs> because um, <coughs> Star Wars. 
Excuse we're not me. talking about Star Wars. <laughs> oh, right, right. But, but um, there's always time for Star Wars. So now, and I don't, I don't feel like this was really talked about as much in the first film. So now in Crimes of Grindelwald, an Obscurus is basically like a a wizard whose magic has been suppressed, or a witch has mm-hmm. been suppressed, like creates a dark twin, and it becomes their, it eventually becomes their only companion. So if he had a sister, they were hoping that they could use her um, to, I don't know, elicit some companionship with him, someone he can relate to, and to draw him out of being an Obscurus entirely. I think that's what they were getting at. Mm-hmm. But that was just so, it, it was kind of out there and it just didn't need, if it was going to happen, it didn't need to be a part of this movie. Right. You know. Well, you know, you mentioned the writing team. I don't really think there was a writing team, at least not credited. That was uh, pretty much Miss Rowling herself. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I can think, like I said, is she was rushed. I mean, but there are some some bigger issues with the film that, you know, I, as a just a fan, picked up on immediately. So the fact that she let them slip through, I don't know if... Maybe she just decided to hell with it. I'll just make it up as I go with these new <laughs> oh, films. Oh, I certainly hope not. Or That would be really too bad because I hold her in pretty high regard as far as her ability to tell a tale and craft an amazingly yeah. well-structured story. Yeah, so do I. You know, And I understand that um, the, the Harry Potter books, it's a very uh, big story. There's lots of details. It's easy to let things slip through, but... I mean, if George Martin can do it, <laughs> you know, I, I think can he? Can he? <laughs> I mean, I'm saying I know he's not writing his books, but he doesn't let things slip through, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure there are a few things. I'm sure there are some really, uh, let's just say, dedicated people out there who have found some inconsistencies in such a sprawling work. But I just you know, felt like in Fantastic Beasts, they were so glaring. It was like if. I saw these right off the bat. Surely the massive team working on Fantastic Beasts, someone... Yeah. Well, you know, you think that a lot whenever you watch films Mm -hmm. like that. You think, Jesus Christ, how could that have possibly gotten through the case? Isn't there somebody watching this? I know. You know, know, they may say, hey, uh, I have a few notes. And, you know, then you, you tighten up your film and make it a little better. I mean, I realize I'm not a filmmaker and I can't imagine the stress and the pressure that probably goes into something like that, especially when you're trying to meet deadlines and, uh, you know, appease this person, that person and the other. Still, there are some things, as you said, that are just are, are far too glaring. So I, I could definitely appreciate that. Some of the things that stood out to me, at least as far as... Um, the story itself moving forward, I found it very interesting that you had this sort of, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Once the split started happening, I felt like that was key, obviously, to the story. And it meant a lot to me. But, I, you know, I, I find myself struggling to find a positive way to, to describe how that happened. Because there was one character in particular, um, Queenie. You know, I, I feel like there was a, a very strong opportunity or, or rather a very ripe opportunity to develop that character in a very intriguing way and push her towards the dark side. But they kind of they kind of fumbled that one just a little bit, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that Queenie, you know, with the limitations in her world, and they did play on that, you know, um, 
she wants to be with a nomad or muggle. Um, and, you know, this kind of frowned upon um, where uh, she and Tina come from. But, you know, also there, I understand the appeal of having her, you know, on his side to Grindelwald because she can essentially read people's minds. Right. So, I mean, that's a very useful... And I think Grindelwald, he sees other um, witches and wizards as just tools. They're weapons or they're tools and they, you know, he sees something he can use. Right. But he professes to to value them as peers and equals. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's he's got the, you know, the charisma, the... um, you know, he empathizes with them, but that's all just a front, obviously. Right. So, you know, that is interesting. Um, and she would obviously be an asset. And on that note, I do want to kind of talk just a bit about Grindelwald since the dude's name is in the title of the film. So when you're reading briefly, as it were, about uh, Galeric Grindelwald and Harry Potter, mm. you or at least I kind of got the impression that he wasn't necessarily all bad. Yeah, he just no. had a sort of differing opinion from Dumbledore. Yeah. Well, I mean, for a while, he and Dumbledore saw eye to eye on some things. And that's what makes Dumbledore such an interesting character. Um, you know, it's almost like, just for lack of better description he was like a republican going democrat you know <laughs> that's, that's pretty <laughs> radical these days yeah no, no it's like dumbledore um you know went along with grindelwald's idea for the longest time that you know wizards were better than their non-magical counterparts yeah, he was kind of going down mm-hmm. that road you he know was. what he kind of reminds me or rather their relationship kind of reminds me a bit of charles xavier and uh eric right. magnus lenshaw um, because the two of them were, were colleagues and close friends for a very long time until, uh, until of course, you know, he and, uh, or rather Lynchure became Magneto. Yeah. That's actually a really good comparison and a very similar storyline. Really. There was a lot of just character traits and things that didn't really sit well with me. Um, you know, you mentioned Queenie. She, that, that wasn't Queenie from the first film. You know, and I understand um, sort of some of the insecurities that had cropped up mm-hmm. with the new... Because, you know, you jump forward a bit. I think it had been maybe a year or so um, that they had jumped forward. You know, that just... It wasn't the same Queenie. Queenie wasn't that insecure in her, in, in and of herself, you know. That really wasn't Jacob either because, I mean, if you look at the two of them, Jacobs don't usually end up with Queenies. <laughs> You know, what are you talking about? I mean, he's adorable, but uh, they're they're of a different. You know, when you hear the term "out of my league," that's that's how you know you might describe. Queenie he was punching above his weight. Yeah, I think is what but, you. Uh, but the what the, you're getting the at. appeal of Jacob is what a good guy he is. Right. You know that's why Queenie adores him because Queenie is just like she's so pure. And Jacob is so good. So it makes sense. That's why that relationship makes sense. But, you know, I felt that Jacob was... And I know Queenie, you know, was doing some things she shouldn't have been. And really, I felt like that was out of character for her by, um, like, enchanting him. Manipulating him Mm -hmm. magically. Yeah, yeah. And um, I felt that Jacob, really, the way he handled that and how he talked to her was cruel. You know, like, when he called her crazy, that, that wasn't Jacob. 
you know, that really, that really wasn't Queenie either. Uh, that, that disturbed me more than anything in the whole movie, I think, was um, the change in their characters. I think maybe if we would have had more time to see that and more time for that develop, it could have worked. Mm-hmm. It was I just think, kind of thrown in your lap. Yeah, it was definitely a pacing issue. That it was a it was an aspect of the story I feel that they were that they wanted to present and they wanted to develop, but they only had so much time to do it. So I definitely understand the um, I definitely understand the expediency there. But then you you know you have the parallel to that, or or I suppose it would be the parallel where. You know the the storyline between Leto Lestrange and uh, her brother, maybe brother, might not be brother. Mm-hmm. That whole deal again, like you said, that kind of muddied the waters. So I think they they really chose the wrong aspects, unfortunately, of uh, of the story that that they chose to uh, focus on. Chose to yeah. focus on or give time to absolutely. You know, that was one thing that was actually clarified for me by reading the screenplay. Because mm-hmm. I was so confused by the whole boat to America, right. loss of the brother scene. You know, was that Credence? Was that not Credence? I'm glad you mentioned that because that was actually a question that I wanted to get to. And that was, you know, um, you having read the screenplay, did that help or hinder? And, you know, obviously go a like I'd to say hear what overall, you have to say about that particular situation, <laughs> especially about the Queenie Jacob um, relationship. But um, as far as the the credence thing goes, right. um, that I finally understood by reading the screenplay. And first of all, let me say I I rarely get confused with films. I mean, I right. watched the show Dark, and I I was able to keep up. And if you can keep up with Dark, you can keep up with pretty much anything. So it was really just poor story structure as far as Fantastic Beast goes. But so basically, Credence was on the ship. He was the other baby that Leda switched out her brother with. Right. So her brother went on the ship, um, or not the ship, sorry, the uh, lifeboat. And her brother was taken um, on the boat that sank, or on the lifeboat that sank. Her actual brother. Yeah. So he drowned. Now, see. And Credence was the baby she had swapped him out with. So, but first of all, I did not get the impression that this boat was just for wizards and witches. So the odds of them both being on that boat Mm -hmm. seemed kind of strange to me. And two, when you can grab the handle of a bucket and be transported instantly somewhere, why would you get on a ship to sail to America? Hmm. Because children can do it too, as long as they're touching the person or the thing, you know, the port key. Right. <laughs> you know, that's something I hadn't considered and I don't even want to, honestly. Because, you know, the thing about watching that scene, and mm-hmm. this is what was so difficult for me, I, I, I find myself to be most of the time pretty lucid, pretty coherent when it comes to the the films that I'm watching or the media that I'm consuming. And, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't fancy myself a dullard. However, when when I was watching that, I was almost leaning out of my seat, just going like, "What?" <laughs> and it was it was that it was the type of thing where y- you know how if you are looking at something indirectly or in your peripheral vision, you can kind of see it, you you can uh, appreciate the concept, but if you look directly at it, you just become more confused and and can't necessarily see the image. Yeah, it was like that for me. If I thought about it too hard. 
then there were too many questions and nothing made sense. But if I just sort of went, uh, all right. Yeah. I kind of got the general concept, but I wasn't satisfied by that at all. Yeah. And really like the credence, um, bit with the, the ship to America, that was the only thing that made a little more sense by reading the screenplay, but everything else I'd say I actually have more questions about. What were the things that you appreciated about the movie? Uh, I loved all of the new beasts. Um, I felt like Newt really stayed true to his character. Um, and uh, I really liked in the first film, where this film actually won over the first one for me, was I did not find the like budding feelings between Tina and Newt to be believable in the first film. But I really felt their, their kind of connection and um, the relationship in the second film. For sure. And that was good because I was really disappointed with just the general coldness of Tina and between her and Newt in the first uh, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Because, you know, with the main characters, you really need to feel, oh, absolutely. you know, what they're yeah, feeling. That's the and, whole point. Yeah. And I know, you know, that their, um, you know, their whole love story isn't the focus of the films. But it is a part of it, and I really did start to feel that with um, Crimes of Grindelwald, so I like that for yeah. sure. Newt, well, Newt Scamander is, is <laughs> as you said, he's a tremendous character, and Eddie mm-hmm. Redmayne, he's he's spot on. Yeah, and I love seeing someone that is as socially awkward as I am being the star of a movie. <laughs> because <laughs> Yeah, he's almost <laughs> the antithesis of a lead. Yeah, yeah, he's he's like the opposite of charisma, which I feel I am. <laughs> and yet it works very well on yeah. screen, and he has a strong presence despite mm-hmm. being that type of individual. Well, you know what? Being that type of individual and being just so off-putting to other human beings, it's, it's funny. I've realized that the friends that I make are those people that will literally befriend anyone. They love everyone. And that's kind of the friends he makes, Jacob, Queenie, you know, and so it's, it's interesting to watch him not even trying to make friendships. They just <laughs> happen because these people just kind of adopt them into their life, adopt him into their lives, which is, it's fun. It's fun to watch. Yeah, I was going to ask who was, uh, or rather, I was going to ask who was your favorite character, but I think that. That pretty much uh, renders that particular question moot. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I did love some Jude Law's Dumbledore. Yeah, and that actually brings me exactly to where I wanted to be uh, in the conversation. And and that was, uh, in speaking about the things that we appreciated about the movie, uh, loved Jude Law, loved his performance. I think he was totally believable as Dumbledore. Specifically, though, I want to address his relationship to Grindelwald and how the two of them were playing against one another at, at such a distance. Um, I think, you know, Dumbledore realizes that he has to do something because he's the only one who can do something. But at the same time, he's the only one who can't do anything because right. of the agreement between them. So it's a really complicated. And you can tell also it's feelings that are holding him back. Whereas I think Grindelwald has let that all go. And, you know, probably back in the day, just Grindelwald you know, using people the way he does, probably early on recognized, you know, Dumbledore's power and his potential and was attracted to that more than the man himself. While as for Dumbledore, it was probably just, you know, my perspective on it, my opinion, Dumbledore, it was more feeling, whereas, you know, Grindelwald saw 
potential. Right. And then is that judging by what we know of Dumbledore now in his Yeah, that really later helped years? to solidify that kind of um, just my view on it, really. Because you could tell the way they were playing it. Um, and I think it was so subtle, but I really think Jude Law and Johnny Depp both helped solidify that for me. Not in any words, nothing that was scripted, just really their emotions the performance mm-hmm. yeah just the performance i would totally agree with that i th- i thought that that was amazing i wanted to see more of that i know i'm i agree with i've seen people say that we would totally watch five movies about the life of dumbledore starring june <laughs> yeah right absolutely absolutely those were some of the strongest aspects of the film and i felt that they were just peppered into yeah um and unfortunately into a, a film that that was just a little too little too mixed up a little a little unbalanced i definitely love those things though and you know while you were saying that i realized that we had made that comparison to xavier and magneto however one of the main differences between grindelwald and dumbledore is that um they went down that road together Whereas, you know, uh, Xavier and, and uh, Magnus were kind of moving towards the good or, or working for the greater good together. Um, it seems more like Dumbledore and, uh, and Grindelwald were kind of moving towards the dark road together mm-hmm. before Albus had, a cha- had his change of heart. So it's a bit of a, a, res- a reversal there. Yeah. And what's interesting is that um, you were speaking about their attraction to one another. I'm wondering if that empathy was always in Albus and maybe that's something that Grindelwald had seen um you know his his willingness to have an open mind and to examine new ideas where it seems like maybe Grindelwald he was locked in on what he was doing he had his you know he had his philosophy more or less and he wasn't going to change it he was going to pursue it to to whatever end and I'm almost wondering if for Dumbledore, love got in the way, you know, how, you know, couples kind of adopt one another's interests. Right. Um, and usually it's the more um, empathetic and emotional of the two that adopts more of the other's interests. <laughs> and so, I, you Genocide know. Genocide <laughs> is my new thing now. <laughs> no, you know, I think it's just when Grindelwald, well, I don't, I don't remember that part of the Deathly Hallows where it's describing that so well, what drove Dumbledore away. But I would imagine it was when he started, you know, talking about muggle slavery and whatnot. Not just that we're better, but we need to prove that we're better. They're beasts of burden. You know, well, there was something specific, and I don't want to go off the rails on that conversation. Wasn't it the death of his sister? That yeah, kind yeah. of pushed him yeah, away. And I can't, you know, all of that is blurry to me. It's been a while yeah. since I've read um, that. And the, unfortunately, the films don't really go into that. No, not at all, book. which is terribly unfortunate. Yeah, because that was probably the most fascinating bit of the entire series to me. Because Dumbledore is, for the longest time, Sirius Black was my favorite character. But as I've gone, grown older, you know, Dumbledore holds the most fascination for me. So I can... Say well, without yeah, a doubt, he's my favorite. He's incredibly character. nuanced mm-hmm. and went through many <clears throat> changes, mm-hmm. um, some of which were almost diametrically opposed to one another. Yeah. Now, I will say in The Crimes of Grindelwald, the only thing I did not care for, and this had nothing to do with Jude Law's <laughs> portrayal, was the way he dressed. That's just not, 
you know, and I understand he was younger, mm-hmm. but that's just not at all. And I know a lot of people agree on this because I've seen, you know, things on the web of people disappointed. It's just that's not how you picture Dumbledore, you know, or wizards in general. You mean the... Um... The waistcoat and slacks versus the robes. Yeah, and speaking of, I in the Harry Potter books, you um, you get the impression that wizards and witches are very out of touch with Muggle fashion. (laughs) Like when they try, when they have to go out among Muggles, they usually wear something ridiculous because they have no idea Mm. what they're doing. They wear things that don't match or don't go together. You know, speaking of that, I, I can probably venture a guess as to why that is i mean i'm sure that it's an aesthetic decision you know because in the books the mm-hmm. kids are wearing their robes all the times and then it and just, then they just aren't yeah, yeah. and then uh, yeah and then when they're out and about they're just wearing their street clothes or, or muggle mm-hmm. clothes as it were so i would imagine that it, it has far more to do with yeah. with the aesthetic and also ease of filming because i'm sure that's a pain in the ass um, but i definitely see what you're saying the uh yeah, it's like in the entire film, like all of the witches and wizards right. seem to blend seamlessly with the white collar Dumbledore versus the yeah, relaxed and, and, and all the other ones too. I mean, Newt he can walk amongst uh, Muggles with no issue. I mean, they they know how to dress. You That's know? true, but even Scamander has a he has like an aloofness to his dressing style. It's just a little yeah, it's a little quirky. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> peculiar. So I could definitely buy that. Yeah. I see what you're saying, though, and that, that is true. I always thought that when I was um, going through the the HP books, mm-hmm. um, I was like, wait a minute, this, this clearly describes Hermione as, ru- you know, rustling through her robes and whatever scene, and then when you yeah. you think about the film that, you know, she's wearing like a like a cardigan mm-hmm. or something. And yeah, like, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. You know, and two, I, I thought, you know, maybe it was everything that goes down with because, you know, Grindelwald, he's pretty bad, but he's nothing in comparison to what Voldemort brings to the wizarding world. And so after all that goes down, you know, a, a lot of muggles died as well. And maybe the wizarding world separated themselves more and they lost touch later on. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I did consider that. but That's going to be interesting to see. I hope that we do get to see that. I mean, because mm. obviously Grindelwald is pretty badass. Yeah, and I mean, he seems a lot more intimidated to me <laughs> visually, at least, than Voldemort ever did. Mm-hmm. And yet, oh, yeah, yeah. and yet, you know, Tom Riddle is he who must not be named, and Grindelwald, you know, you can say his fucking name whenever and however you please. Yeah, um, it was funny in the screenplay um, when they all go to the cemetery, and Grindelwald is getting ready to give his big speech to all of his potential and um, current followers. She says, um, I can't remember what the other part was, but she's like, Grindelwald enters part rock star, part something else. You know? Oh, yeah, so absolutely. She totally intended that sort of um, you know, appearance for him. Yeah, I can dig that. I, I, just as an aside, but re- relating directly to Johnny Depp, I found it fascinating that he was listening to a lot of Marilyn Manson and, and had some of his artwork <laughs> in his trailer when he was playing uh, Willy Wonka. Oh, okay. To get into that character that sort of mischievous uh yeah um imp that uh that was Willy Wonka <laughs> which I could totally see because there was a darkness to uh to that character oh, and, and yeah. some scenes where you just got a little unnerved so I could totally see him rocking some dope hat in his trailer 
and uh, very much the golden age of grotesque and the crimes of Grindelwald. But that was the scene that you described. That was the end of the film, if I recall, or very close to the end. Yeah, it was getting there. Um, uh, and that's uh, another... You should you should preface this whole um, oh, podcast yeah. with spoilers. Massive spoiler alert! <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean the movie's okay. been out for a couple of weeks, and of course, you know um, this is going to go in in the middle of the show, and there will be an introduction, so there will okay. definitely be a spoiler warning. So this this is the end of the film, and you were going to make a point now that everyone has been warned that there that will be spoilers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you had something you were going to say. Yeah, um, and I found actually quite a few inconsistencies in this film, um, be it between the Harry Potter books and this new uh, series, this new story, or just within the movie itself. And this one um, was at the end of the film, which we were talking about, when um, quite brilliantly, I felt, Newt uses the Niffler to steal um, the pendant or I guess Grindelwald wears it as a like a brooch, doesn't he? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is essentially the uh, promise between he and Dumbledore that they never um, harm one another. But um, you know, it was brilliant that he used the Niffler, and the explanation that he gave was, you know, very beautiful. I thought to Dumbledore, he was when Dumbledore was like, "Really, he used the Niffler <laughs> to uh, you know nip this off of Grindelwald?" But um. When Newt says that, you know, Grindelwald doesn't really appreciate the nature of simple things, you know, that that was beautiful. But at the beginning, during the escape scene, um, when I assume the chupacabra is in his cell to deter Grindelwald in some way, otherwise they wouldn't allow him to have it. But Grindelwald somehow kind of brings it to his side and... Um, you know, gains its affections. So clearly he's sitting in there working on the nature of a simple thing and he uses it, you know, not in a major way, but in some way to aid him in his escape. So I felt like that was kind of inconsistent, really, with just, um, you know, Newt's judgment or the overall judgment of um, Grindelwald and his manner of thinking. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. There, I mean, the fact that they put a, a creature in there with him mm-hmm. at all is kind of mind blowing. But uh, I mean, if the dude's like Hannibal Lecter, why would you give him any resource at all yeah. to use against you? Yeah, and that's why the only thing I could think is that the chup- chupacabra was playing some role in keeping Grindelwald from getting out. Right, like some ability it has. Yeah, and and maybe it's there. Maybe it's in the subtext. Maybe it's in uh, expanded text somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd really like to know, and I I would encourage any of you listening to for sure write us in and uh, or write into us, I should say, and and let us know what you think about that. If you have the info, then please do share it. And you know, speaking of inconsistencies, that's the weird thing about this movie. It it is so good in some places. And then fails so tremendously hard in others. And I think that's one of the reasons why I can't say, oh, this was terrible and I didn't enjoy it. Because I really did enjoy it. It was so strong in places mm-hmm. and, and in others mm-hmm. just, just not at all. Yeah, I think if you take each scene 
and each little storyline and put them on their own. I love all of it. I really do. But when you stitch it all together, it's a just one big confusing mess. A hot mess, I think, is what the kids call it today. Yeah, and you know, but there were a couple of just major, you know, inconsistencies within the wizarding world that I um, honestly found kind of unforgivable. Uh, <laughs> you know, Do share. Um, well, first of all, unless and you know, if it was some mistake on his part, they needed to clarify that. But when Jacob says, you know, oh, well, you know, it didn't work on me, the Obliviate, it didn't work because it only gets rid of bad memories and, you know, all my memories were good, save for a few, and Queenie filled me in, uh, you know, I immediately in the theater was like, no. <laughs> um, mm, yeah, that's a pretty big one. Because a major scene in The Deathly Hallows is Hermione obliviating herself from her parents' memories because she's going off with Harry. She doesn't know if she's going to live. You know, she doesn't yeah. want her parents to be in danger, interrogated. You know, That had tremendous that. weight. That the emotional yeah. weight of that was hardcore. Yeah, I think the only time I really teared up in the Deathly Hallows was when you had to watch Hermione erase herself from her parents' minds. And, you know, they had a good relationship. They were right. supportive of her. So by Jacob's logic, it would only erase the shitty memories that they had yeah. of and, Hermione. You know, obviously, <laughs> yeah, and obviously Hermione is, you know, all... She herself is a wonderful memory in her parents' minds, so... Well, at least you hope. Yeah, you hope so. I mean, I don't know. That, yeah. that needed to be explained more because just left as it was, it sits as a huge inconsistency. Yeah, I think that's what you might call lazy writing. Mm -hmm. And that's just incredibly and that unfortunate. that to me was just glaring. I was like, I, how did you miss that? Unless there's another explanation, and if there is, you need to give it to us mm. because that's so glaring. Yeah, that's too bad. That and, is know, way too bad. Yeah, and another major one to me was, um, and when I first watched the movie, I wasn't thinking about it so much, but McGonagall being at Hogwarts, um, she, I don't think she had even been born. I believe she was supposed to have been born in the 30s. Um, so I was like, okay, well maybe that, maybe I was stretching it. Maybe it was her mom and she followed in her mother's footsteps and became a teacher at Hogwarts. But when I was reading the screenplay, it clearly says Minerva McGonagall. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I assumed that it was McGonagall <clears throat> and yeah. I, I, that one went right past me because I'm not as familiar with those details. And you know, yeah. I'll offer it up that maybe Rowling was thinking specifically of Maggie Smith because She's been around since Moses was in short pants <laughs> and, you know, still looks yeah. like she's in middle age. So I, I could see how that <laughs> maybe slipped her mind. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, you know, I didn't appreciate that. And, um, you know, one thing I do find interesting, Voldemort has been born at this point. He, because hmm. he was born in... 1926 and i think oh, the story I'm, takes i have no clue he should be a an infant or a toddler or something along those lines um so i wonder if at any point in the future films if they'll throw a bone to him mm, like somebody yeah like just a tiny easter egg where if you're not looking for it you won't know yeah well that. at this rate i wouldn't be surprised if he was a full-on character yeah you know uh, like 12 or 13 or or i guess for the sake of the story you'd have to be a little younger but mm -hmm. uh uh, yeah, I hope not. 
You know, and I guess we can't really end this without talking about the big bomb they dropped at the end. The big... Uh, you know, <laughs> should, I, should we should we mention that? I mean, of course, there will be the spoiler warning. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, sure. Why not shoot? It's, it's, it's a big question. I, I still don't know what to make of it. I personally feel like Grindelwald is lying to Credence. Specifically about him being a Dumbledore. Well, Credence... Yeah, even though he's in Grindelwald's clutches at this point, Queenie does say to him, "He's be gentle with him, he's mm. still not sure. Right. So I think that Grindelwald is probably using that, that, you know, huge, powerful family name, Dumbledore, to probably build up Ezra and create um, probably some bad... Whether it be mm, actual right. blood or imaginary blood between him and Dumbledore, because that's what he essentially plans to use um, right. Credence for. And I, I am behind that totally. And it also reminds me of uh, Kylo and and Ray. Is he lying? Is he manipulating yes. her? Yeah, I was trying to think of that because I um, totally believe Kylo was lying. And from a storytelling perspective, though, they they featured the Phoenix. It was mentioned. Mm-hmm. earlier in the film that you know a phoenix will always come to a dumbledore etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. and then they have the phoenix so but you know in the film it wasn't quite as apparent but in the screenplay grindelwald is meticulously placing the breadcrumbs for Ezra. Mm. he has every right 100 steps okay. planned for this kid so it could really it could really go either way it wasn't but, laid out explicitly one way or the other mm-hmm. is that what you're saying yeah, and you didn't, you really don't realize until you read the screenplay just how cunning Grindelwald is. I mean, he's got plans for weeks in front of these people. Like, he is way ahead of the game. Right. If anyone is ahead of the game, it's him. And I think that's where his real power lies, is just foresight and planning and understanding how to manipulate people. So that phoenix he probably placed in Credence's way mm. to sell his story. Well, I will say this about the crimes of Grindelwald. I, I'm still fascinated. I'm not turned off in any way. I was disappointed mm-hmm. by what I experienced and what I saw. But that's not to say that there weren't things that I really enjoyed. And, you know, despite some of the letdowns, I'm still really looking forward to the next movie. Oh, yeah, me too. And like I said, with all of the negatives um, we've discussed, I still can honestly say that I kind of love it just because it encompasses everything that I love about that world. It definitely has me experiencing a bit of uh, what I can only describe as cognitive bias because, you know, on the one hand, um, I have all the boxes that need to be ticked to make a good film. Mm -hmm. And if those boxes aren't ticked for me, it's very easy for me to dismiss something wholly and completely and write it off. Um, so this movie is definitely a conundrum for me. It's because it, it really did not tick even uh, half of those boxes, and yet uh, I can't turn my back on it completely. Yeah. I mean, it, not that I would do that anyway. I, I'm, I still, I still to this day cannot fathom you know, just dropping a, a franchise or a, a series of books or films that you love, you know, just because you saw one that uh, that didn't necessarily jibe with you. So maybe that, you know, they had such a strong start in the first movie 
they had a lot that they wanted to accomplish in this one and maybe it just didn't work out. That's not to say that three, four, and five aren't going to be great or hey, maybe even a couple of them will be great. Yeah, and, and that one would good work. thing is that Rowling really listens to her fans and this you know, this franchise is so important that they're not going to intentionally screw it up. And people have not been silent on the things that they are disappointed with with this right. film. So I really, I'm really hoping they'll take it, you know, all to heart and head and really come back and knock it out of the park with the yeah, next one. Exactly. And that's, that's really how I feel about this particular episode of this show is I never start anything with the intention of, of dismantling something or just tearing it down or beating it up. Um, you know, I try to find the positive in things and, and that's, I guess that's what has made this one so weird is there's just so much to, to find disagreeable and so much to, uh, to not like. And, but then there you go. There's also so much to like, so it's definitely a weird one. Yeah. I just, I don't know how to feel. I've never liked something so much that I, <laughs> that I dislike so much. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, that that it's itself, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to end on that note because I think that's about as positive as you can be. I mean, like, for example, when it comes to uh, Star Wars episodes one, two, and three, there is there is nothing almost that, uh, that you can get out of me that says, okay, well, you know, that part was pretty good, pretty good. Mm-mm, no, I just, I can't deal with it. We're not talking about Star Wars. I'm aware of that. Yeah, but the comparison is there. I mean, it, it would be very easy for me, someone who didn't grow up with Harry mm-hmm. Potter, someone who's not a diehard fan of the franchise, it would be very easy for me to say, wow, this was a load of shit. Yeah. And then just, you know, turn my back and uh, and go the other way. But um, I haven't. I'm still fascinated. I'm still a fan. And, you know, I, I want to see where it goes. Yeah. yeah All right. Sure. Well, uh, I certainly appreciate you sitting down with me again. We ran just a little bit longer than we had planned to, but there was a lot to talk about. Yeah, there really is with this one. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Mags. No worries. Ah, yes. A big thanks once again to Maggie for taking the time out of her evening to sit down and talk to us about the crimes of Grindelwald. I do suggest that you pick up the screenplay If you'd like to clear up some of the confusion or relative obscurity that seems to surround that particular film, I think it would help, definitely. Um, Maybe listening to this cleared up some of those things for you. Who knows? Might have made more questions. Um, I can't say. But hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. I don't want it to be misconstrued or misunderstood that I did not enjoy the film. I certainly did. And I do look forward to the next one. So there is that. Um... Okay, so as far as the next show goes, guys, I'm really hoping that I can get my dad, Steve Marcotte, back on the show. He seemed to express some interest in joining me. It's been a year since he was last uh, on in that capacity, and it's been about a year since The Last Jedi. So hopefully we can get him back on and, and maybe talk about our thoughts and feelings on that particular film since so much time has passed and we've had that opportunity to process it. So either way, I think that the next one's going to be pretty good. I'm looking forward to getting it recorded, produced, and uh, and on the air for everybody to enjoy. So that said, I have been your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant Podcast. Mm-hmm.